Welcome to the June 2018 edition of the RehabCast from the Archives of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. I'm your host, Dr. Ford Vox. Now, I hope everybody's having an awesome summertime so far. It is lovely, if a little wet, here in Atlanta. Of course, keep in mind that the ACRM's annual meeting is right around the corner, and this year it's in Dallas. That's September 28th through October 3rd. It's definitely time to register if you have not already. Now, the Archives June issue, what we're here for, is a special issue focused on patient safety and quality in rehabilitation. We're going to be talking with the authors behind two of the papers in this special collection. They're both from the research organization RTI International, which works with the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare to develop and test some of the measures we're all judged by. So keep listening. Now, first up, the news. Just imagine for a moment what the world might look like in 50 years. In the future, every human individual will have a plethora of technologies to augment their bodies. In 1982, both of my legs were amputated due to tissue damage from frostbite incurred during a mountain climbing accident. At that time, I didn't view my body as broken. Technology is broken. I'm an MIT professor today, and I recently started the Center for Extreme Bionics. I realized firsthand the extraordinary capacity of technology to heal, to rehabilitate, and to extend physicality beyond natural levels. For hundreds of years, amputation has been viewed as a procedure that's done when there are no other options. And so fundamentally, the surgery hasn't changed since really the Civil War era. How are you feeling? I met Matt Cardi. I said, would it be possible to construct this architecture? We just happened to come up with a series of ideas that we said, okay, we should try this out. This seems pretty crazy. I like to make the comparison to recruiting the first astronaut. That's a clip from the trailer for an upcoming Stat News documentary on advanced robotic prosthetics. It features the work of Hugh Hare. He's an MIT professor who's also a double amputee. The documentary is titled Augmented. Now, I had the pleasure of interviewing Hugh for CNN in 2011, an article about Oscar Pistorius. Hugh's work has only gotten more interesting since that time, leading up to now this science translational medicine blockbuster paper, which was published on May 30th, Proprioception from a Neurally Controlled Lower Extremity Prosthesis, or as summed up by Stat News, pioneering surgery makes a prosthetic foot feel like the real thing. Jim Ewing is the amputee described in the paper. He seriously damaged his left foot in a fall while cliff climbing in the Cayman Islands. The MIT and Harvard team undertook a new amputation technique that created with a term an agonist-antagonist myoneural interface, or AMI, spelled A-M-I, where the surgeon connects the agonist and antagonist muscle tendons so that the contraction of one muscle stretches the other. Multiple AMI muscle pairs can be created for the control and sensation of multiple prosthetic joints. Electrodes placed over each AMI muscle communicates with the computers in the bionic limb to control the movement of the bionic joints. As the bionic limb moves, the AMIs enable the person with limb amputation to feel its positions and movements. Here's Dr. Hare speaking about the technology to the Technology Entertainment Design audience, aka TED. The current amputation paradigm hasn't changed fundamentally since the U.S. Civil War and has grown obsolete in light of dramatic advancements in actuators, control systems, and neural interfacing technologies. A major deficiency is the lack of dynamic muscle interactions for control and proprioception. What is proprioception? When you flex your ankle, muscles in front of your leg contract, simultaneously stretching muscles in the back of your leg. The opposite happens when you extend your ankle. Here, muscles in the back of your leg contract, stretching muscles in the front. When these muscles flex and extend, biological sensors within the muscle tendons send information through nerves to the brain. This is how we're able to feel where our feet are without seeing them with our eyes. The current amputation paradigm breaks these dynamic muscle relationships and in so doing eliminates normal proprioceptive sensations. 
Consequently, a standard artificial limb cannot feed back information into the nervous system about where the prosthesis is in space. The patient, therefore, cannot sense and feel the positions and movements of the prosthetic joint without seeing it with their eyes. My legs were amputated using this Civil War-era methodology. I can feel my feet; I can feel them right now as a phantom awareness. But when I try to move them, I cannot. It feels like they're stuck inside rigid ski boots. To solve these problems at MIT, we invented the agonist-antagonist myoneural interface, or AMI for short. The AMI is a method to connect nerves within the residuum to an external bionic prosthesis. As for what happens next, definitely go watch the video on the TED website. It's titled "How We'll Become Cyborgs and Extend Human Potential." There you'll see the video of the incredibly natural movements of Jim Ewing's prosthetic foot and ankle as he walks and takes the stairs. Because Jim's central nervous system is receiving the proprioceptive signals, it knows exactly how to control the synthetic limb in a natural way. Now Jim moves and behaves as if the synthetic limb is part of him. For example, one day in lab, he accidentally stepped on a roll of electrical tape. Now, what do you do when something's stuck to your shoe? You don't reach down like this; it's way too awkward. Instead, you shake it off, and that's exactly what Jim did after being neurally connected to the limb for just a few hours. What was most interesting to me is what Jim was telling us he was experiencing. He said, "The robot became part of me." The morning after the first time I was attached to the robot. Uh, my daughter came downstairs and asked me how it felt to be a cyborg, and my answer was that I didn't feel like a cyborg. I, I felt like I had my leg, and、um, it wasn't that I was attached to the robot so much as the robot was attached to me.、And、the robot became part of me. It became my leg pretty quickly. Thank you. By connecting Jim's nervous system bidirectionally to his synthetic limb, neurological embodiment was achieved. I hypothesize that because Jim can think and move his synthetic limb, and because he can feel those movements within his nervous system, the prosthesis is no longer a separate tool, but an integral part of Jim, an integral part of his body. Because of this neurological embodiment. Jim doesn't feel like a cyborg. He feels like he just has his leg back, that he has his body back. It is brilliant stuff, and undoubtedly, where prosthetics are headed. As for the rest of Dr. Hare's TED talk, the extending human potential bit, I certainly don't share his enthusiasm for transhumanism. Hare goes on to expound that we will assuredly begin to augment ourselves to have super strength. And even take flight. Now that might well happen, but in my view, it will be part of the same dystopian future where couples will be giving birth to genetically superior designer babies. Now I think there is a clear divide between the noble efforts and great need for us to heal and rehabilitate one another, and another world increasingly approaching, thanks to the possibilities created by some of these same technologies that we're developing to repair ourselves. Where these tools are used to perhaps change humanity itself, as that transhumanist world becomes increasingly realistic, medicine may be forced to take a stand. It's one thing to see the field of, say, plastic surgery normalize facelifts and breast augmentation over the past few decades. Today, those elders among us, with the money to do so, can, with the aid of plastic surgery, look considerably younger. And reap the rewards of that appearance in our ageist society. We've come to accept this level of augmentation. It will be quite another thing entirely if humanity has rehabilitation medicine to thank decades from now for a future where some of us choose to amputate our arms and legs in replacement for superior bionic parts, wire in third eyes, or integrate wings into our spinal cords, dividing humanity along lines. Far more severe than race, gender, or sexuality. This future would represent an evolutionary level division, really the end of the human experience. Dr. Hare literally says in his TED talk 
that we will be creating superheroes. Our society has enough problems coping with the powers billionaires hold over the rest of us without dressing them up in Iron Man suits. So I thank Dr. Hare and his team for their brilliance in helping Jim Ewing and all those that will follow him, even as I genuinely fear the future Dr. Hare says he hopes to help create. Anthony Bourdain, who are you? Fine, I have a pretty good idea who I'm not at this point. Who I am, who knows the answer to that? Uh, you know, I will be judged by, you know, the people who remember me and quickly forget me. <laughs> Is it all worth it? Uh, yeah, look, it's, I'm not gonna say it's hard out there on the road. Uh, I have a good life. Uh, I have the dream job. I have the best job in the world. Uh, but there is, a, there is a price to be paid when your dreams come true. Is it worth it? If it wasn't worth it, I wouldn't do it. So I guess the, the answer is yes, it is worth it. The nation was emotionally rocked this month with the twin suicides of Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain at the same time as the CDC released statistics showing that our suicide rate is up fully 25% from 1999. Bourdain in particular, by virtue of living his life on the TV screen for millions, connected with many of us, and seems to really embody a lust for life uh, and a joy in life that many of us can only aspire to. Despite his history of drug abuse and his battles with depression in the past, both things that he had openly discussed and written about, the most recent stage in his life, he appeared to be doing just about everything that we recommend folks do to stay mentally well, keep learning, stay engaged, make new friends, reunite with old friends. So his suicide came as an absolute shock to people like me who were just in his audience. Rehabilitation medicine is blessed with the close involvement of psychology at all levels. And we all know the importance of mental health in the rehabilitation process. We also know how disability carries with it higher risks of mental health challenges, something a steady drumbeat of research confirms so we try to build our networks of care to accommodate for this ongoing need as much as the larger external forces of payers and regulators will allow us to. I hope that a renewed national interest in mental health will emerge with this clear message that even the seemingly healthiest and happiest among us are vulnerable to life-ending mental illness. There's perhaps no more powerful way to message to everyone that mental health services are something we all need ready access to than seeing a beloved celebrity who seems to be the embodiment of joie de vivre take his own life. Please see my latest CNN column, Suicide Prevention, Here's How You Can Help. Apple's new health record service has major implications for medicine generally, but rehabilitation medicine in particular. The developer tool called HealthKit lets the thousands of Apple app developers get access when consumers grant it to their health data and use it to power their novel health and fitness apps. Apple is planning to host your clinical health data, becoming the central repository and doling out that information to all the app makers with your permission. Of course, it will be the consumer's choice whether they trust Apple enough to provide this data, but surely millions will do so. The data will thus become a vast treasure trove for health systems and researchers as well. As described by CNBC's Christina Farr, essentially Apple would be trying to recreate what it did with music, replacing CDs and scattered MP3s with a centralized management system in iTunes and the iPod, and the similarly fragmented and complicated landscape for health data. Now we see that plan starting to come into place. Apple is starting out with Parkinson's disease uh, using the accelerometer and gyroscope data in iOS devices that has been long sought by Parkinson's researchers who want to monitor tremors, freezing, and dyskinesias. Uh, and it's gonna allow them to start developing clinical tools, hopefully, that can lead to better medication adjustments and so on. Apple says it's gonna to start to make that happen. Other rollouts of the health kit include speech analysis that could be useful for stroke researchers, hearing tests, and vision tests.
Joining us now on the rehab cast are Melvin Ingber and Laurie Coots Darris, both of RTI International. They're out with a couple of papers on readmission risk as a measure of ERF quality, i.e. inpatient rehabilitation facility quality. Uh, and Melvin, you actually have one more for a total of three from RTI in this issue of the journal. Uh, this issue is all centered on quality metrics and how we can improve what we're doing in rehabilitation medicine and how we should be judged. Now, both of you are coming to us from RTI International, which is a large research conglomerate organization. Uh, perhaps it has some parallels to the RAND Corporation. Now, we're going to be talking about the work that you were doing on behalf of CMS. And I know you wanted us to state up front that it's important to note that you are not speaking for CMS. You're speaking on behalf of yourselves and RTI in the course of this podcast. And your comments today do not reflect the views and policies of CMS. Laurie, would you start by telling us about RTI and its genesis and the type of work that it does with the government now? So that's right, thank you. Um, RTI International, we're an independent nonprofit research institute, uh, and generally we provide research, development, and technical services to government and commercial clients worldwide. Um, so our particular um, area is focused in um, health policy and health economics. Um, uh, Mel and I sit in a similar division, um, our business unit at RTI. Um, the work that we've been doing over the past several years um, is for the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, or CMS. And um, the uh, research that we'll be sharing today is from a CMS-funded project, um, although one of the studies is also related to some um, uh, intramural research uh, that we've been doing at RTI. And speaking of CMS, in terms of uh, background, of course, Mel, you had a, a career in, inside uh, CMS there as, uh, as a director. Could you tell us a little bit about uh, what you did in CMS? Yeah, at CMS, uh, where I spent um, about 16 years, actually, uh, although the organization kept changing the names of where I was working, it was basically the uh, research area that CMS maintained. And uh, I was mostly in the area of payment research. But before I left, which well, I left it about uh, it was 2006, uh, I was working also with the quality people at CMS. Strangely enough, the first of the measures that are similar to the one we'll be talking about today, uh, having to do with readmissions measures as a quality indicator, that was being developed uh, by CMS uh, in conjunction with Yale, and I was on the CMS team for that. And we were developing at that point readmission measures for acute care hospitals for particular conditions, which were uh, pneumonia, uh, heart failure, and uh, AMIs, uh, heart attacks. Uh, and so we were developing the same system that I've been working on at RTI for a number of years now, uh, doing readmission measures in post-acute care. Uh, I did an also a lot of work which spilled over on risk-adjusting models because I worked on the risk adjusters that are used to pay managed care plans, and we developed uh, the system we're using here. Now, Laurie, the work you're doing on behalf of CMS is legislatively required, I believe. Correct, yep. Um, so with regard to the inpatient rehab facility quality reporting program, uh, you're correct that the program itself was required as part of the Affordable Care Act. Um, and the, um, so that sort of required CMS to set up a program similar to programs uh, like Hospital Compare or the Nursing Home Compare and the Nursing Home Quality Initiative, um, where the goal is to be measuring quality um, and publicly reporting that information with the idea that patients and caregivers can use that information to help in their selection of a post-acute care provider. Um, so the program was required by ACA. Um, the all-cause hospital readmission measures, which um, is uh, the focus of, of two of the papers um, in this month's issue, um, is um, not, the, the measure itself was not required, um, but CMS um, had identified that, you know, not surprisingly, there's a lot of attention on hospital readmissions and um, in improving uh, transitions of care um, and in increasing the coordination of care across the continuum. Um, so that particular measure is not required. Um, however, since then, uh, the 
Improving Medicare Post-Acute Care Transformation Act of 2014 was passed, and that um, legislation does require specific resource use and other measures. And with regard to readmissions, um, that act requires uh, measures of risk-adjusted um, hospital readmission, um, potentially preventable readmission measures um, for all of post-acute care. And so there is um, work that we've been doing uh, for CMS since then and research on you know, what is a potentially preventable readmission um, and uh, how do we uh, develop approaches that can be used across post-acute care for um, quality reporting. So one of these papers certainly uh, outlines kind of your development and initial uh, testing of, of the measure. The next kind of puts it to test and, and uh, looking at some different variables with regards to uh, uh, geography and ownership status of the hospitals and, and that type of thing. Um, uh, let's certainly uh, start start with the paper on uh, the, the development of, of the measure in, in particular. And certainly there's, there's a lot of you know, sophisticated statistical manipulation here. I mean, the the uh, entire crux of the matter is developing this uh, this risk uh, adjustment. Certainly, you can just calculate uh, these raw values. Uh, I, I imagine in a somewhat straightforward fashion. The the, the real challenge is, is being able to utilize that information and being able to uh, you know kind of have some expectations, some ground expectations of, uh, of what these rates might be and determine if a, if a hospital is going to uh, be outside the mark a little bit, uh, whether in a good direction uh, with, with a lower uh, readmission rate or, uh, or worse. And then, of course, uh, as we stated, it's up to CMS to decide what to do uh, with that information. Walk us through, if, uh, if, if you would, you guys, about uh, kind of uh, how how you go about um, uh, attempting to develop a model with so many variables uh, uh, like this? I mean, how do you narrow down the work, work with even this large amount of uh, information? Perhaps there's too many questions at once, but uh, <laughs> uh, uh, Melvin, perhaps uh, you could you could start for us with with kind of what what it looks like at the beginning. Well, uh, fortunately, it starts with a reasonable amount of data. That's uh, always good because then you can begin to estimate models that have um, a lot of uh, adjusters possible in it. Um, so when these model, the, the formulation of this model, uh, it, its very beginnings were similar to the work that uh, was done for the hospital readmission measures. Um, there is a, a, a prediction going to be made of whether a person's going to be readmitted um, to a hospital uh, after going to the earth in this particular case, the PAC setting, and uh, that, if you just took crude readmission rates, obviously wouldn't adjust for the case mix. So the question then becomes, number one, how do you uh, adjust for case mix? And that's a lot of the modeling that's done. And secondly, how do you separate out uh, a variable that represents the quality of the facility insofar as it drives those uh, readmission rates after you've adjusted for the case mix. So uh, we start out actually without uh, considering the facilities, but what are the factors that determine the, the uh, tendency or probability to be uh, readmitted to a hospital. And our, our models all do start with the um, presumption, because this is a readmission rate, uh, that you didn't walk off the street into the rehab facility, but uh, that you came from a prior hospitalization. Uh, so that we now can uh, use information from the prior hospitalization to tell something about the patient at the facility. Uh, that's independent of what the facility itself uh, can record. Uh, there is an awful lot of information of, uh, about what patients have as characteristics. Uh, we, we certainly use demographic information, which is to say age and sex, and um, in this particular case, the reasons for eligibility um, for, for Medicare and uh, Nature, that nature of, of that material is fairly straightforward. And then the question is, what else do you want to use from the uh, PAC facility claim, and what do you want to use from other information? 
this was um, designed to be driven from claims information. So as uh, those involved in you know, rehabilitation know, there is a, an ERF, so-called ERFPI patient assessment, which has a lot of information that we do not use because we're sticking with the claims. So to get uh, a reasonable information about diagnoses of the patient, we go back all the way to the prior hospitalization, and we also go back a year and look at information from other hospitalizations that may have happened. So we are able to bring in both the principal diagnoses uh, as information from the immediate claim that preceded, and we can bring in the secondary diagnoses for comorbidities plus information from those prior claims also as comorbidities. So that gives us a wealth of information on the diagnostic side uh, that we can use to do case mix adjustment. And then it gets a little bit messy, but uh, we use two different groupers to uh, group the reasons for uh, the, the, uh, the principal diagnosis on the prior claim and the secondary diagnoses. The, uh, they're, they're kept separate and a grouper is needed because obviously, uh, and particularly in ICD-10, uh, many, many tens of thousands of uh, ICD-10 codes for diagnoses are not usable. So um, the two groupers that we use are the ones AHRQ uh, has developed, the usually referred to as uh, clinical classification software, uh, CCS, and that's used on the principal diagnoses. And the other grouper that we use is used for comorbidities especially, and that's uh, hierarchical coexisting conditions that were actually developed for CMS uh, at uh, RTI, and so we use that grouper for the comorbidities, and that that gives us uh, a lot of information. But we don't uh, stop there, uh, because on the claim, the uh, payment group is used, uh, which is the usually called the the CMG, which contains information that the ERF itself declares about the type of patient. Is it a stroke patient? Is it traumatic brain injury? Is it a hip replacement? They, they also have a grouper of these kinds of patients, plus it has information uh, mainly on motor score. And so by bringing that in, we're able to get information that would normally be on a patient assessment, but use that as well. So there are numerous variables, and we have over 200, I believe, in, in this model, which we can do because we have hundreds of thousands of observations we can use. So I'll stop for a moment and <laughs> if you see which way you want to go with this. In terms of the ultimate outcome of all of this data, you have kind of a, a raw readmission rate and then the calculated relative uh, uh, risk standardized uh, version, and that's already being implemented, I see, by, by CMS, or at least a number very similar to what the conclusion is in, in your paper of that number. On the CMS website, it has 13.39% uh, is an estimated adjusted readmission rate, which is kind of very similar. The, the paper has 13.1 plus or minus point plus or minus uh, 8%, a slight slight difference there. And then we're uh, utilizing that number to, uh, to compare each individual ERF uh, around uh, that, that adjusted mean. Uh, grossly, that, that's the achievement that we're looking at in this paper. Yes, the, the important part is actually, uh, for the purpose of the measure, is uh, at the facility level. Once we develop a rather sophisticated predictive model, the next level of the model is to say, oh, we have 50 patients uh, all in the same facility, facility A, and we have 900 patients in facility B, and so they have commonalities and they're clustered in, in these uh, particular facilities. And the software is able then to uh, by looking at the commonalities uh, basically across all patients in the facility, and the more patients you have, the more information you have to work with, um, you can begin to compute. In this particular case, we use what's called hierarchical modeling in which uh, there is uh, some assumption that there's a distribution of these facility effects. Some will be better than average, some will be worse. And um, the model essentially... 
uh, it calculates the predicted value for all the patients in each facility, how many patients would have been readmitted, and then compares it to the value if the, you were in the average facility. So it's able to say, this group of patients that you have, uh, what would we predict? What, what proportion of them would have been um, predicted to be readmitted? And divide that by, oh, if you were in the average facility. So you get a ratio for each facility of their uh, predicted readmission rates uh, compared to their expected. Now, that in itself is the measure at that point. Are you doing twice as well as are you doing twice as badly? Uh, you can tell right from that uh, number of, of comparing things. But then that's converted into this other rate you were talking about of 13-odd percent uh, by multiplying by the national rate, so it's easier to understand. So everything is now compared to this uh, sort of average number. Are you higher than this 13 percent or lower than based on how well you did compared to, for your own patients, what you would have expected to have been done. So that, that comparison that we now do uh, is the key to who's better, who's worse. And I don't know, Lori, do you want to uh, talk about the nature of the shrinkage part of this thing? <laughs> yeah, well, I think, uh, you know, one thing just to clarify before we get um, to that point is just that... Um, the measure, um, as you suggested, Ford, is um, being publicly reported on the Medicare.gov inpatient rehabilitation facility compare website. Um, and actually, there's a bit of a difference in terms of the years of data that are being used. And so in our paper, the data um, were actually from 2013 and 2014. Um, and then what's currently publicly reported for this measure um, is data from 2014 and 2015. Um, yeah, so there's a um, bit of a difference in the time frame. It's really coming out very, very similar there. So there's certainly more picking apart in terms of trying to analyze some, uh, some variables in, in the next paper. In this one, though, I, I have one question for you about, did I, do I understand this, this correctly? There's a section discussing the percentages of, of ERFs in general who are better or worse um, on, on the risk adjustment. Uh, and it looks like that there are uh, far more ERFs uh, who are performing uh, uh, worse in that volume decile uh, three and four ver versus uh, the, uh, the, the basically aren't as many ERFs who are uh, performing far uh, better than, than their expected averages. It looks like there's a lot more at, at the bottom. Is that one generalization that you guys are making here? Yeah, and actually I think that um, ties in nicely to um, the point that Mel was making about how the, these categorizations are done. So um, we then, we estimate the model to calculate the measure, um, and then in order to get some uncertainty estimate around the risk standardized readmission rate, we then run the model a thousand or two thousand times, referred to as bootstrapping, and construct confidence intervals around the point estimate. Um, and then based on those interval estimates, we compare that to the national rate and are able to statistically distinguish between a facility that is significantly better than or no different than um, or worse than average. Um, so the point that you've just made is, you know, we do um, in the calculation, um, it's a random effects model, um, which essentially um, results in uh, some shrinkage towards the mean of the risk standardized readmission rates. And if it's a smaller facility with less data, um, then there's more of that shrinkage than if it's a larger facility where we have more information. And so some of what you've just pointed out, I think, is a is related to the fact that we have um, less certainty when we have smaller sample sizes for smaller um, inpatient rehab facilities. One of the ways that we um, tried to combat that a bit in developing the measure is by pooling two years of data together so that we could increase the sample size for some of the smaller, most likely hospital-based rehab units that um, contribute less data. Now, and the caveats to this type of work is certainly that, um, you know, it's, uh, it's this all-cause all type of measure, and you don't know, if, of course, whether some of these causes are avoidable or not. I mean, all, 
quality metrics are going to have this type of challenge to some extent or not. We have to be able to synthesize and utilize the data that we have in the aggregate to be able to attempt to make things better, measure in some form or fashion. You can do much more laborious, I guess, detailed kind of chart reviews of individual, individual cases and try to determine if there was really something that that facility could have done about this, this particular uh, case. And that, that, so I guess that caveat applies to, to a lot of these, uh, these types of measures. I, I do wonder uh, when, uh, when developing these types of measures, does it make a sen sense at some point to um, kind of look at some outliers and is there any potential for any external reviewer, even, even CMS, to determine on, you know, to look at an outlier and look at some of these individual cases and say, you know, what uh, does this information really mean on the ground that this facility could have or should have done differently, could learn from? Uh, what's your uh, understanding of, of that level of analysis? So I can start um, just by um, commenting that I think you've touched on an important area that, you know, we know that there is a lot of research going on around the country um, to try and do, you know, perhaps a root cause analysis for uh, certain readmissions um, or to evaluate healthcare providers that have readmission rates that are above average. Um, so, um, you know, I, I do think that there's a lot of um, uh, effort going on um, by providers to dig into that so that they can identify, you know, perhaps the um, any patterns um, in readmissions or, you know, so-called low-hanging fruit of uh, readmissions that could be uh, potentially reduced. Um, so I think that um, is uh, important context for the research that we're doing. Um, there also has been uh, considerable work um, by CMS and others to evaluate um, and to help inform the measure development. So one thing that we haven't really mentioned is that this is a measure of unplanned hospital readmissions. And so to distinguish whether a readmission is considered planned or unplanned, as we describe in the paper, we use a couple of approaches. Um, one is to use the um, CMS planned readmission algorithm, which was developed um, for use in the inpatient quality reporting program. Um, similar, you know, kind of the earlier work Mel mentioned that um, Yale has developed and then has been maintaining um, for CMS. However, when we began measure development, we recognized that post-acute care beneficiaries may have planned procedures um, or reasons for planned readmissions that may be a little bit nuanced or um, unique. Um, and so we did uh, engage in um, work to get input from clinicians and technical experts from around the country to develop a list of planned procedures that would be considered as um, you know, unique, perhaps. Um, I think over time, uh, some of the um, conditions on our list have made it onto the CMS planned readmission algorithm. Um, but uh, we, we have done a you know, fair amount of research to at least pull out what we know to be planned. Um, so something like that might be an amputation or a skin graft um, and so forth. And um, in our analysis, uh, we have found roughly 8% of all hospital readmissions are categorized as being planned readmissions based on this approach. Can either of you visualize a day, uh, certainly this is all a kind of a, a post hoc uh, analysis, you know, years uh, later, massive reams of data, but uh, can you visualize a day when uh, the, the analysis, the algorithms get good enough that hospitals can start to use this information in real time, uh, certainly the rehabilitation hospital taking in an admission, doing their initial assessment, they can already risk stratify. I mean, certainly as a, as a clinician, I mean, we're going to develop our individual plans and so forth, but even at a, at a facility level, it might be kind of nice to know what the hot zones are in terms of the individual people in your hospital where you need to devote more of your case management time. Um, just as a, as a simple initial assessment uh, measure, real-time utilization of, um, of readmission risk. Do you, do you think that's some holy grail that can potentially be achieved? I think your uh, proposal doesn't uh, stem directly out of our work, which is obviously averaging over many, many patients, but the basics for the first level of what we do, which is a probability of readmission, uh, the kind of modeling that that uh, depends on could be then redirected 
but would be much more uh, augmented if there were actually other data available, uh, for instance, lab values and uh, radiology information that we can't get to in an administrative way. So yeah, I mean, and this is being done in a way uh, in hospitals who are developing models for their patients to to look for high risk uh, situations. And the, the, the way these models are done, without including the part about looking at the facility effect per se, but uh, putting in lots and lots of risk adjusters and a bit with a, a base of many, many people, uh, yes, you can uh, basically get a risk profile of a patient. Uh, and I think th that has, is being done, but on a much smaller level in, in other research. Uh -huh. I, I did want to uh, respond to your um, talking about avoidable admissions. First of all, of course, uh, CMS and we don't uh, think zero is the target uh, that's realistic at the moment for uh, readmissions, so that the fact that there are people who got, get readmitted is, is not itself disappointing. It's a question of, on average, can we we make improvements in this? And you, you brought up the issue of not every patient uh, you can prevent from being readmitted. There are always circumstances that are special. So that, that feeds into the fact that you can't go to zero. But in addition, um, as we mentioned in the paper, the, the law also uh, has pressed toward a potentially avoidable subset of readmissions that uh, we can model as well uh, and, and are working on uh, a similar... Uh, now, to say this, this is not looking at a patient and that patient's chart, but because that obviously is not you know, quite what this, is, this tool can do, but it can uh, look at what's the probability of being readmitted for, let's say, a UTI or something else which shouldn't necessarily result in, a, in if you're in a post-acute care setting that you should be able to handle, uh, perhaps, or you should be able to do planning in the post-period after discharge to help people see their uh, primary care physicians. A lot of this um, in this particular model we're talking about is aimed not toward, and this may not have been clear so far, the period in which the person is in a facility. We do have uh, a model work that does that. But this uh, one that we've discussed here is a post-discharge measure. And so it's about the continuum of care. And so we have a list of uh, more likely to be controllable conditions that are potentially uh, avoidable. And uh, so that's a subset of the all-cause. So it doesn't get into looking into a patient's particular situation. And the measure is intended, we know that there will always be problems and outliers, but the measure itself focuses on the facility's effect on average on its patients and yeah, some of those patients will uh, be very difficult to prevent to go uh, get readmitted later, but others not. And But on average, are you doing better with your set of patients? And it, So that is the focus of this particular measure. Probably could have uh, elaborated there a little bit for our audience at, at the beginning. Um, certainly, you've excluded patients who are acute transfers out of that IRF uh, rehabilitation facility back uh, to the uh, original acute care hospital. These are only people who received an, you know, their entire complete course of care at the ERF were discharged, um, uh, not to another peer facility, but to, uh, but to a step down and uh, looking at the, the readmission rate within the next 30 days. It looks like uh, uh, the readmissions uh, do cluster around uh, that, that two-week mark, and in particular seems to be a real uh, hot zone, um, and perhaps if, if somebody is, is allocating resources for uh, post-discharge uh, follow-up, you'd really want to pay attention to that to that initial uh, two weeks uh, to, to be developing some of your, your most intensive kind of post-discharge follow-up uh, uh, nursing care and, and that type of thing. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Um, and, you know, related to that, uh, in that particular analysis, we also compared uh, the number of days from being discharged from the inpatient rehab facility to to the hospital readmission and kind of looked at that by 
different categories, um, different rehabilitation impairment categories, and saw that there, you know, and, and this is consistent with prior work um, led by um, Ken Ottenbacher um, at uh, UTMB, um, where, you know, we do see big differences in readmission rates by the impairment categories. So, for example, um, you know, things like neurological um, or, you know, miscellaneous reasons for receiving inpatient rehabilitation, like debility and so forth, um, have a much higher rate of readmission when compared to um, orthopedic uh, conditions, um, you know, fracture, um, but even lower when we look at um, something like a joint replacement. Um, and, you know, in some of that, you know, clinically, I think we um, would expect uh, to see those differences. Um, but, you know, I think um, thinking about uh, a facility's case mix, it does underscore the need to risk adjust for these factors because if you have a different mix of patients, um, like more ortho orthopedic patients, then, you know, you are more likely um, to have a lower readmission rate. Well, now let's talk about some of the trends that you're observing in, in your next paper. I am curious, uh, the, re the, the, the research questions that you're asking in this paper, which is about geographic region and profit status drive uh, variation in hospital readmission outcomes among ERFs. Um, that, that probably, or just tell me, was CMS involved in asking that question uh, in particular, or is that a question that, that, that you're then asking and independently doing this uh, research out of your own data to see what you can find? Yeah, so that's a great point. So this is more independent research, although the data um, we did, you know, receive uh, permission and a, um, a formal data use agreement to conduct this work. Um, but really, this brings it to the next step. I mean, if we identify, you know, here's... Uh, the rates of hospital readmissions among patients that receive inpatient rehabilitation, we risk adjust for it. We look to see what is the variation nationally um, to see, you know, what's the room for improvement. When we look at an interquartile range, I mean, does it look like there are facilities that um, could improve their rates and so forth? Um, I think this next paper really um, aims to take it to the next step of seeing, okay, well, is there any variation by some of these characteristics? Um, and, and what might that look like? And so in particular, we were um, exploring, as you said, geographic region, um, as well as a number of organizational characteristics um, in, in the study. And um, in the end, it did you know, uh, appear to be that there were strong geographic um, effects. Um, on facilities readmission rates, and that's even after controlling for um, practice patterns. Um, in the models, we adjusted for uh, s essentially state hospital um, readmission rates among the Medicare population and in, in overall. Um, and then also, you know, finding um, some significant differences in uh, uh, hospital readmission rates based on uh, profit status or um, ownership. Um, so. In particular, um, for-profit facilities had uh, significantly higher readmission rates relative to not-for-profit facilities. There were some things that uh, where there were clear differences, but they didn't continue to pop out after the uh, the risk adjustment as well. But that for-profit or not uh, seemed seemed particularly strong. One of those that that uh, did not, but nonetheless, I guess was was a trend: the the freestanding earth or not. Uh, that that appeared significant after the risk adjustment. It it is not significant. Would you clarify that for me? Oh sure. Yep. Um, so essentially, when we look at descriptive statistics and the readmission rates, just you know, without accounting for anything else, um, and we look at the type of facility. Um, so as you probably know, um, almost eighty percent of all inpatient rehab facilities are hospital based or smaller rehab units, um, and uh, the remaining. Uh, 22% are freestanding rehab hospitals. Um, so when we just look at those two groups and readmission rates, we see that hospital-based inpatient rehab facilities have uh, readmission rates of around 12%, uh, and the freestanding uh, facilities have readmission rates of 13.5%. Um, so just comparing that way, um, there is a significant difference. However, when we um, conducted the multi-variable um, regression model, uh, just a linear model predicting readmission rates um, and control for the organizational characteristics um, and uh, geographic region and so forth, um, that difference is no longer statistically significant. And that, and that calculation includes the case mix as well? So the model itself is predicting 
um, risk standardized readmission rates. So we're at the facility level and the outcome is already risk standardized. And then uh, it also looks uh, on the face of it in terms of descriptive statistics that urban ERFs uh, have a higher uh, readmit level. Uh, same thing there that once you adjust, uh, there's not an urban-rural divide? That's right. Yep. Okay. Uh, but again, uh, emphasizing this, uh, the for-profit thing does, does stick out, which is uh, fascinating and, you know, for perhaps uh, uh, a bit eyebrow-raising. Um, and, you know, one you know, can only speculate as, as, to, as to why that might be. And I know your paper doesn't, doesn't address that in particular. But nonetheless, you observed a significant effect uh, uh, that, that came out there amongst uh, uh, that nonprofit versus uh, for-profit uh, status. That, that is certainly a, a, a big divide in rehabilitation medicine as it is in uh, a lot of other, other fields. Um, and it's fascinating to see a difference in outcome uh, with regards to one particular variable in that. Um, uh, I don't know what the implications of, of that uh, uh, may be beyond uh, that, that particular observation. Certainly other, other questions could be asked about other differences and, and how a for-profit versus nonprofit rehabilitation hospital might be uh, uh, delivering care. I would like to say that these uh, factors that we're looking for, these we, don't forget the dependent variable is the already, let's say, the risk standardized rate or the raw rate that have been uh, all, already, the only the risk standardized rate has actually been case mix adjusted. So when we look, though, at the effects of these characteristics, they're not huge. But uh, there are a few of them that do stand out, uh, such as the for-profit. And we didn't know what we were going to find. We didn't go to prove anything here. Yeah. But um, it did turn out that that was a, uh, one of the larger effects that proved to be statistically significant. Yeah. And the other one, of course, that, that stands out is this geographic variation, which is fascinating as well. Um, so the, the Northeast was, was beating out the, uh, uh, the Southeast and South Central regions in terms of having uh, a lower readmission rate. So uh, something to, uh, that perhaps, the, uh, again, the, the rehabilitation industry ought to take a look as there, there's something, something different about the way healthcare is organized up there versus down here. I'm down in the, in the Southeast in the high, high readmission area apparently. So Although I used to practice in, in Boston, so I've seen uh, uh, both sides of it uh, myself in my own career. But that, that is another fascinating uh, uh, trend as well, which I know you, you guys doing the statistical analysis, um, you know, you can't really uh, carry that forth into what the practice variation may be, but I suppose it then falls to people in the field to, to ask uh, if, if there is something in terms of the way that, again, we are, we are organized or the routine things that we're doing that uh, justifies that trend. I think it's interesting that areas as large as a census division, which are multiple states, um, can have a common effect that's so different. Uh, we always find small area variations that we attribute to practice patterns and what whatnot of that nature. But here we have entire multiple state areas that are shown to be uh, having much lower rates or, or higher rates. Very interesting. Yeah, I, I struggle to, to speculate myself about, about what that may be. I've certainly seen a number of differences in, in my uh, practice and uh, in terms of the medical environments of, of Atlanta versus Boston, but it's hard for me as an individual practitioner to attribute what any of those may, how those may add up to some type of uh, uh, general trend in terms of uh, readmission rates for all the different rehab facilities in, in the area. But uh, nonetheless, it is it is an important work, and both uh, do raise intriguing questions. The uh, both of those, the, the geographic and for-profit status, and what that might point to. It's a bit, bit of a mystery. It'll be fascinating to see if it continues to be uh, confirmed in successive years. Then we really do have to get creative about trying to, trying to figure out uh, what's going on there. Um, I think those were really the main findings. Um, you know, although where we don't see differences, um, you know, that suggests um, suggest to us that, you know, 
if we're considering this to be a measure that's a signal of quality, um, then our goal would, or not our goal, but what, what we might hope to see is that there are no systematic differences by these characteristics. Um, the fact that there are, I think, you know, as you said, does sort of, you know, point to some things in some areas for future research. Um, and, you know, we have um, some uh, additional research questions that, that we've been exploring, um, and one of which we uh, presented at the ACRM conference uh, last year, uh, where we were looking at uh, differences in um, Medicare margins, um, so, you know, essentially a revenue margin, and uh, the relationship with margins and quality outcomes. Um, and so, you know, uh, that um, has also been, you know, quite interesting. You know, I think we've got m additional work that we're interested in doing to try and explore that further. But, um, you know, it does appear that, you know, there might be different um, practice patterns or incentives that, um, you know, s such as um, shorter inpatient rehabilitation lengths of stay uh, that might be, you know, contributing to um, higher, higher uh, readmission rates. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, you all pointed out in these papers that uh, uh, that longer stays do seem to be correlated a little bit better with uh, better functional uh, outcomes. That's not the way necessarily that some uh, Medicare plans are, are, are organized. There are incentives to keep that stay as, as short as possible, and that becomes more profitable. Uh, for the facility, so it kind of makes you wonder. The actual payment system uh, used for various provider types uh, does have an impact on, obviously, the, the incentives, uh, such as, of course, having a fixed case payment for uh, the, the rehab uh, facilities. The tendency to want to have a shorter stay even there would be uh, profitable. And uh, if you went to a skilled nursing facility, which is paid on a per diem, the incentives are, are quite different. Uh, so we have uh, various incentive factors, which is why I think that quality measures um, such as these and others certainly become important because they begin to offset uh, the gain of having a higher payment with cheaper costs uh, and uh, therefore a more of a profit in some circumstances if publicly it's being reported that your outcomes are not looking as good as others. So these quality measures, speaking generally, why they're there now is to, to balance off uh, with more information uh, the information that's available to facilities right now, which is how much money am I making? And now they begin to see also their public report that other people will see uh, that says, but now I'm not looking so good in, in this public report that people have seen. So you begin to balance off two incentives there. Now, um, you certainly mentioned in these papers that uh, this is based on kind of the, the straight Medicare population, that managed Medicare or Medicare Advantage population. You don't have as good of data, too, although I gather some of that data may become accessible to you uh, at a later date. What's the main challenge with why, why that data isn't as accessible, just because of the multiple different companies involved and they're not required to collate that back to CMS? Yeah, so there are um, encounter data that get submitted to CMS. Um, however, the quality of those data aren't at the point of us being able to harness them for assessing this outcome for that population. Um, overall, uh, the Medicare fee-for-service population represents just over 60% of all patients treated in inpatient rehab facilities. Um, and there's also evidence that suggests that Beneficiaries that are enrolled in Medicare Advantage plans um, may be um, healthier or may have better outcomes. Um, so in that case, you could see how, um, depending on the proportion of fee-for-service patients, Medicare patients that are treated at a given facility, that may or may not capture the whole story um, when it comes to assessing quality in this area. And you certainly don't have uh, private insurer data either. Um, uh, to fill me in, uh, what, a, what the health, health economic analyses are like uh, for the larger private insurers, uh, do they have their own uh, shops similar to what you guys are doing at, at RTI, and are they, uh, do you think uh, if you take a look at, you know, Aetna, is it sophisticated enough to go, well, um, in general, when our plan members are going to this particular 
rehab hospital, they're more likely to be readmitted uh, than others, and that creates some of their uh, preferences. Uh, what do you think is going on in the background at the private insurers? The private insurers are in a slightly different uh, situation because although they are very large uh, and cover many, many, many uh, patients, uh, they do have the problem of ge being very geographically dispersed, so they don't have necessarily a lot of patients going to any one facility. Uh, that, that can be somewhat limiting for an individual plan uh, that's covering people because you do need uh, a fair amount of the population, and since uh, Medicare covers a lot of the people that are going to uh, most of these facility types, we have bigger sample sizes. But they do have uh, access to very large databases, but not, not necessarily for any one specific provider. They are working on, on things like this. It is in their interest to do so, but uh, we don't know exactly uh, where they are. Uh, going back for a moment to the encounter data, uh, the encounter data, as Lori said, are not of great quality, but uh, right now uh, CMS has determined that they can release the 2015, even though it isn't ideal. So they are deeming it because people have been pounding on the door, uh, the, the encounter data. We know what the limitations are on, on these encounter data from other work we're doing. Uh, but uh, they, they are going to be usable fairly soon. I want to point out one uh, difficulty in using them. Uh, if in models like uh, we create, we use diagnoses and groups of diagnoses, it is known that since uh, in Medicare, uh, the managed care plans are uh, paid on a risk adjustment formula using these uh, diagnoses, they have a very strong incentive to be sure to have um, a very complete coding, an incentive that doesn't exist in the fee-for-service environment. So one might have to uh, consider that uh, the same patient might look sicker coming uh, as reported by a managed care plan uh, than they would be from the random claims that we find in the fee-for-service world. Uh, so anyway, <laughs> it, it's just a question of um, trying to be careful <laughs> in using these data. Well, uh, you know, it's fascinating work and important work uh, and legislatively required work. <laughs> so uh, uh, I appreciate you guys uh, kind of giving a, our, our audience some, some background on it and some insight in, into these papers. And um, uh, I, I'm sure that uh, you're going to be uh, doing a, a lot more of this, this type of analysis for, for CMS and others in, in the future. I want to give us a, a window into, into anything that's coming coming next. Uh, any current uh, interesting projects that you guys are on at the moment? <laughs> well, we have lots of projects. Lori, do you do you want to speak to the fact that there are uh, requirements in the law for an array of, of such measures, similar to the the rehab, but there are some other things moving along as well, right? Yeah, that's right. And in fact, <clears throat> we noted that the. Um, June issue of Archives also has a paper by um, researchers at, um, in Texas um, on the potentially preventable readmission measure. And so I'd mentioned previously that the uh, Impact Act requires um, not all cause, but a potentially preventable set of readmission measures to be used for post-acute care. Um, so those are on the horizon. Um, last year at this time, um, or last fall, I should say, uh, Post-acute care providers received confidential feedback reports, including their performance on the potentially preventable readmission measures. Um, but in addition to th that set of claims-based measures, the Impact Act also required um, measures of uh, discharge to community rates and um, Medicare spending per beneficiary. Um, so those are other measures that I think are on the horizon. Uh, as I said, post-acute care providers have, um, you know, started to um, get their reports to understand their performance, and um, CMS has done some outreach and training. Um, on the um, IRF Compare website, starting later this year, so by the fall, uh, results of or performance on those new measures will be added. Um, and actually at that time, uh, CMS uh, is uh, sunsetting the all-cause hospital readmission measures. Um, so um, to, to focus on the um, Impact Act required potentially preventable readmission measures for public reporting. 
Very good. Okay. Well, thank you guys for participating in this podcast today. Well, thanks for uh, helping us spread the word about <laughs> what is going on on our little part of the world. You bet. Thank you. We're, we're um, excited to have the opportunity to share uh, the work we've been doing. So thanks again for the, um, for the conversation. And that's a wrap for this June 2018 edition of the Rehab Cast. Thank you again for listening. And please check out the full June issue, which is packed with articles focused on safety and quality in rehabilitation. Please tune in again next month. podcast is brought to you by ACRM, the American Congress of Rehabilitation Medicine. Don't miss their annual conference coming to Dallas September 30th through October 2nd, the largest rehabilitation research event in the world, and it's interdisciplinary. Visit acrm.org.